What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian and I'm on a mission to build a trust web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. In the Trusted Web podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener, and thought leaders to explore what needs to get done. In this episode, I'm joined by Molly McHugh. She's a writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare. Her insights are informed by years spent working in Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, and the Baltic States as an advisor to presidents, prime ministers, and governments. Her articles have appeared in the Politico, the Washington Post, Wired, Lawfare, and many other places. In this episode, I'm joined by Molly McHugh. She's a writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare. Her insights are informed by years uh, spent working in Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, and the Baltic states as an advisor to presidents, prime ministers, uh, governments. And her articles have appeared in Politico, The Washington Post, Wired, Lawfare, and all, all other sorts of uh, platforms. And currently, she's working on Great Power, where she's a lead author. Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, I was so impressed while researching all the things you work on. Um, can you sketch the context? What is the state of the internet currently? <laughs> the state of the internet is hot garbage. Um, you know, I, it's a good question. It's an interesting, expansive question, obviously. And I just think uh, in the information domain, which is the piece that I look at most closely, um, I think at the beginning of all this, you know, there was this assumption that that having all of this information available to us was going to make us uh, smarter, more engaged, more productive human beings. Um, and pieces of that are absolutely true. Um, but I think maybe just for this generation, but I think it's sort of a human psychology problem in general, having all bits of information available to us simultaneously, true, false, uh, purposely false, uh, accidentally false, sort of true, maybe true, myth, legend, uh, you know, all that sort of jumbled together in the same place is really, really hard for all of us to parse through, um, especially when we're not really sure what information we can trust or what the sources are. Uh, and so it's just, I think this, there's the sense now of the state of the internet is overwhelming and uh, figuring out a way to make it less overwhelming, um, especially given the ways that we've seen it used uh, not for good in the past decade um, is a really critical challenge to move forward on. And can you maybe you uh, use in uh, often the the information warfare? Could you unpack information warfare for us? Absolutely. You know, I think um, there's this idea of sort of weaponized information, which is very separate from accidental falsehoods or people who really, really believe that green tea is going to cure you of all your ills and really want to blog about it. Um, you know, there's different categories of information that maybe aren't the most helpful things in the world. But this idea of information warfare is really sort of the purposeful targeting of a manipulative and coercive narrative that is designed to sort of prey upon a particular psychological aspect of whoever the target is. Um, but it's designed to change behavior, right? It's designed to make you uh, interpret information differently, analyze your uh, place in that information differently. 
um, and change the way you make decisions to change how you act. And I think that's that's it's that sort of connection between crap on the internet and behavioral change that um, is the creepiest nexus of all of this. Um, but it's the hardest one to understand, and it's the hardest one to get people to believe is actually happening. And while it's so simple to you know sort of put it just in the marketing realm and can, and explain to someone, look, this is no different than getting you to buy a vitamin or a specific pair of shoes, right? Or as my niece, who's eight the other day from the back of the car is like, hey, you know, McDonald's has red and, and uh, yellow signs because those are the colors that make you hungry. Like if you if you put it in a marketing sense, it makes total sense to us. Like, oh, yes, this is something that's meant to make us act a different way. But um, when you're se- when you're talking about it as uh, selling ideas, right, sort of uh, putting information in front of people that changes how they view their interests and how they should act upon those interests all of us have this really high bar of denial we're just like oh no nobody can change you know what i do or what i think and like everything i think is absolutely the truth because i'm so smart um and that's actually just not true and it's not a left-right issue it's not a conservatives don't get it but liberals do it's not a progressives don't get it but but conservatives do um it's all of us. All of us are being coerced and manipulated by information in front of us. And sometimes that's about buying a vitamin. And sometimes it's um, about undermining our own interests and really subverting how we are acting um, within our own uh, communities and states. Before we dive into solutions, what, what made you, what, what, what drives you, Molly? What, what made you to, to decide to write about the disinformation uh, and, and warfare and, and fake news? What, what, what's your driver? You know, it's funny because I think everybody, it's such a weird new uh, expertise, this whole like disinformation concept, right? And you have such an interesting mix of people, some who are like hardcore tech and code type people. Uh, you know, some who really come from sort of the marketing algorithm, uh, more math side of this, um, uh, people who were from media, people who were from politics, like you've such an interesting mix of people talking in the space, uh, former military, you know, whatever. Um, for me, it was really that um, I was working in Georgia uh, in the period after the war in 2008, where um, the Russians kind of slunk home, having not quite won that war the way that they wanted, um, and and sort of sat down and figured out what they needed to do to do this better without the tanks. And that was really the period where Russia was was reinvesting in and refreshing and revamping its tools of political warfare. And a huge piece of that was, of course, information. So all the new investments in Russian state media, RT, Sputnik, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But really, so a total reinvestment in we need to control narrative in other languages that are not Russian in much more efficient and effective ways. Um, and a piece of that, because um, this was 2009, so just after Obama was elected, um, it was the first election that got sort of global attention that had um, social media mobilization as like a key aspect of that campaign. Um, in 2009, you then had the the Twitter revolution in Moldova, where you saw these new small pro-democracy parties um, really take down the entrenched former communist government um, using social media in new ways. So in that period, you saw... Um, the Kremlin really paying attention to social media. What is it? How does it work? Hiring Westerners to teach them things like micro-targeting and all this other stuff. Um, and then that period afterward uh, was when they started using some of the things that we now see and just sort of accept are going to happen. But these sort of siloed, micro-targeted uh, Black PR campaigns, but building these sort of separate narratives and parallel realities 
Um, I saw that used in Georgia um, much more clearly after it was effective in swaying the outcome of an election in 2012. Um, but it was so clear to me that this, if you can do this thing where it's completely separate realities, one side sees all of this, the other side had no idea any of this was really happening uh, in terms of what the information that was flowing before people online and the way that it sort of hyper-radicalized um, specific political groups within that context and made them so manipulatable to like fake, you know, radicalizing campaigns of lies at the right moments. Um, it really, it really terrified me because it's so powerful and so simple to do. And it was all, you know, you didn't need a ton of people to to get this thing done. So that was sort of a mobilizing moment for me. And I think it was so frustrating in that period between, you know, the Georgian war and everything that happened in Ukraine and Crimea in uh, 2013, 2014, when suddenly the West is like, oh, hey, this is something that we should care about. Um, and it's just so much more expansive now. Like this is not just uh, a disinformation campaign against Ukraine. It's expansive efforts targeting um, the West, targeting free nations, really meaning to erode how we believe in all the stuff that actually makes us um, whole nations. And if we do not pay more attention to this, um, and I think America is the great big red warning light to everyone, right? If we do not pay more attention to this, it is very easy to lose everything that's important to us. So I'm sorry that's such a long answer, but <laughs> that's why I pay attention to this. It's just I see how powerful this medium is for convincing people that what is good for them is not good for them. And um, it's just become so dangerous that, that I wish there was a quicker solution to this problem. But um, we all collectively need to pay much more attention to this space. And let, let, let's see what, what is needed to solve this problem. I saw previous interviews where you said that just media literacy is, is not the solution. There is so much more that we need to do. Can we come to kind of a roadmap per stakeholder? Because I think we both agree that it, it must be a holistic solution. There, there's, there's not one stakeholder who can solve it. It's way too big for that. Absolutely. And I do think obviously media literacy is great, but um, I think, uh, you know, people also sort of interpret their own media literacy their own ways. Like if you would talk to a Republican voter in the US, they would tell you that they have, I check lots of different news, but all of that different news may not be so truthful. Um, so I think media literacy is a piece and sort of, certainly teaching it in schools is great, fine, whatever. Um, I think uh, civics uh, is a much more important space to focus on, um, especially for younger kids. I think in the US in particular, this has become a real uh, fault in our stars as it were. But um, uh, so there's all sorts of educational things that are important and good and um, need to be done. But then there's sort of the things with the platforms where there's this annoyingly pretend, you know, oh, we didn't know that it's doing any of these things when obviously it's designed to do all of those things. And they have the research showing that it was doing all of those things and they just like pretend like they didn't know. Um, this really needs to stop. And yes, it is difficult to parse out what is good quote information versus what is not. It is not difficult to parse out radicalizing conspiracies. Um, and the fact that they could so swiftly remove, you know, everything connected to QAnon when they realized like, oh crap, this just caused like a massive national crisis. I mean, they know what this is doing. 
And I'm, I'm really sorry if it's going to take away a billion clicks a month from you and your revenue, but um, this is dangerous and it is driving people mad. And that fracture is not something that is easily repaired. I mean, it's, it's so simple to radicalize people online and it is not something you can unwrap. You do not de-radicalize people on mass scale. It requires one-on-one engagement with people they trust, with information they trust. It is a slow process of winding people back. Um, and so I think there's, there's sort of the platform issues which need to be addressed, which would be really nice if they stopped with the, it's my first day, I don't know. Um, and if they really wanted to be a part of the solution, which right now it's clear they don't, obviously there's things in sort of news and media writ large that could be addressed and enhanced, but um, this issue of free speech versus craziness um, is something we need to figure out a way to address um, for our citizens. And, you know, what, you know, what is news? What is the responsibility of an organization claiming to be news? Um, what are the standards amongst the industry that we can come back to? So many questions there. But then I think, um, you know, the biggest piece of this and the one that I tend to focus on the most, because it's so ephemeral, but it is really this issue of trust within societies, of uh, leadership. Um, and this is where it's been like, especially in the United States context, you know, been so absent, just the absence of leaders who are willing to tell us what is true um, and sort of force it down our throats and have those difficult conversations and not just do what a poll is telling them to do. But um, this issue of leadership is so critical in trying to put things back together. Um, and I think, uh, and just having authority behind statements of this is a bad false narrative, you know, this is something that the Russians are trying to convince you of. Um, those things are so important. And there's such good examples in, you know, Lithuania and Estonia, where there's sort of trusted government entities that in a nonpartisan way communicate to the public about narratives and, and sort of toxic information that are targeting them. How do they do that? What does that look like? Is there kind of a government website saying, hey, these three narratives are going around or... Yeah, you know, it's, 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 again, it's difficult because they really have to try not to get in to the domestic piece of this or start naming names and being like, that guy is crazy and you shouldn't listen to him. So in the Lithuanian context, I think there's a really positive example of how they really focus on narrative. So they will, you know, they'll talk, especially in, in the Lithuanian context, there's so much Russian narrative that targets them about history and, and you know, Soviets were good and, and Lithuanians were actually Nazis and all this like crazy stuff. Um, so they really focus on narrative and just saying like, you will see you know, stories that are telling you X. And this is the purpose of that. Like, this is, this is why it's wrong. This is what the facts, but this is what it is trying to convince you of, um, and what it aims to achieve. And so, you know, they can do that in the context of parsing foreign narratives. And then when they, you know, that way, when people see it domestically from, you know, right politicians or crazy nationalists or whatever, um, then people sort of recognize it and have that resilience to those ideas. And I think doing it in that way where it's not about this calling out specific networks or, you know, this handle is doing something bad, but really helping people understand the stories in which these pieces of, of fake news are happening um, is so much more critical. So I think that is such an important role model for us to, to have, to emulate. Um, and it takes time to build trust in the people who are conveying those messages, but the Lithuanians have done it really well and sort of systematically over seven years now or so. Um, and I think it's a, it's a positive. Theirs is mostly run by uh, sort of a group of, of military who look at the space all the time. Um, 
but uh, there's certainly different ways to do it. Um, I think the U.S. is trying to do something like that, and we sort of saw pieces of it during our last election, but, you know, it's impossible when we had the president that we had, so um, I think it's a, but it's an important thing to look at, like, the more that I do think, um, and it's something that I focused on a lot in, in the latest piece that I put up on Great Power, but I think government has such a critical responsibility in this entire venue of influence, uh, whether it be Chinese or Russian or whatever, um, to communicate to the targets of that influence, whether it be information or academic funding or whatever it is, this is the goal of what this is doing. And you should understand what it is before you get into it. Um, And we don't have that defense as normal citizens uh, for the most part right now. Um, but if there are, there are tools of warfare targeting individuals within our societies, there has to be that shield in between that the government is helping to provide. So I think that for me is a big critical black hole right now where we just need more. And then all of these other initiatives that are already happening, you know, all the smart people that are doing research on these topics, all the smart people that are trying to find solutions with the platforms and with media and all these other things, there will be more space for that to flourish once you kind of fix this top-level trust leadership issue. The thing that a Trusted Web as a community is working on is through blockchain technology, open-source technology is making transparency and accountability part of the base layer of the internet. It's, is, is that something that you think makes sense? Absolutely. I mean, even in the most basic form of you know, you're more likely to to read something from a verified account on Twitter than some rando from Illinois. Um, It's such an important thing to understand who is talking to you, where is it coming from? If you want to know more about them, can you find that? Um, And I think, so I think that, that this idea of creating more transparency and that sort of fabric that can become trust again within uh, how we are accessing information is really, really critical. And it's um, uh, something that I think a lot of people have sort of toyed with, you know, while drinking in a bar, but not actually tried to to fix. So <laughs> I give you credit for trying to find a way forward with it. Um, but I think it's absolutely critical to, even if it's like a, a separate carved out piece of the vast cavernous um, information universe we now live inside, but knowing that there are those trusted, verified sources of information, even for basic stuff now, like trying to find a website that compiles actual factual statistics on anything is like almost impossible. Um, So I think the more that we can do that, create verified, transparent, accountable, trusted information um, that people can go to for specific things, um, the more we can do to create that space, even if it's small at first, I think it sort of creates that core that can then build out, right? And when you create the advantage of that, people want to contribute, they will try to follow those rules, you know, they want to be in that system. Um, And the more you can do to create that sort of positive uh, feedback cycle um, is really critical, yeah. And I think when policymakers are involved, for example, what they can say is, hey, information that hasn't a sender taking accountability just can't spread that far. So there's always freedom of speech, but not always freedom of reach because that's that's not the full problem, but part of, of the problem of information warfare could be that that information that no one takes accountability for reaches so far. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's this debate that we've had here a, a lot. Uh, 
the the finally the removal of of Donald Trump's Twitter account has been sort of the penultimate you know debate over this topic. Um, but I think this idea of freedom of reach uh, is so critical to help people parse through. And, you know, the platforms are private entities. They can create whatever rules they want. They have no duty to provide people with the ability to transmit crap. And um, I think really reinforcing that and sort of digging through all the layers of opposition to this, which is, you know, how can you take down Donald Trump and not, you know, Putin or whatever the the response was that we saw this week? it, it is a good question. You know, why aren't you applying these standards more more equally across across the entire environment? Um, but I think it's one that we really need to have the debate on and and enforce the platforms to um, own this more. Um, it just needs to happen uh, because the consequences of not taking responsibility for being an amplification vehicle for radicalization narrative. Uh, is evident here just up the street from me in Washington, D.C. And I think everybody's sort of terrified about what happened. But for those of us who have worked on this stuff, it was coming. This was this was always going to be the end point of this. And the fact that they deny it is just like... It's incredible to see that, that all this was necessary for us to open the eyes. It's really frustrating. <laughs> For uh, you, you from all you have seen over the last decades, what um, is there hope? How will the problem uh, evolve in the years ahead? Will it get worse? Will it get better? Where are we in the, uh, by the end of this decade? So I do think there's again layers of problems here, right? Uh, you have bad actors within any environment you want to define who now understand these tools and will use them no matter what, and. Um, uh, you know, maybe that's guys like Steve Bannon or uh, the crazy billionaires who keep giving him money. Um, or maybe it's, uh, you know, non-state actor terrorist organizations, or maybe it's Russia, or maybe it's China, or maybe it's Iran. Um, there are plenty of people who are going to keep doing this, which is why you can't just play whack-a-mole with the answer. It has to be sort of systemic approaches to how you prevent this from happening. Um, so I do think there's more awareness of this. I do think most people don't want to live in this like crazy cavernous environment of echoing bullshit, excuse my language. Um, so I do think there's like momentum to get out of the mess, but I think there's also like so many people that are happy because they're still in that like adrenaline feedback cycle of participants of information warfare that they love. Um, it takes a while to, to solve that problem. And I think in, in the American context, it's so much about like just sort of turning the temperature down and getting people recommitted to a civic sense of self. And that takes work and it takes time uh, and it takes really good leadership. And I think we'll hopefully be moving in that direction, um, but it's not gonna be a four-year project. And um, I think other places, I think you there is this warning of like, if the biggest, richest, most powerful nation on earth, which was the most certain democracy as far as we could tell before, uh, has now become this like ridiculous steaming pile of rubble for absolutely no reason, like just because they all went mad. I hope that that's enough of a warning that everybody else can put pressure on their own crazy populist, you know, radicalizing politicians. Stop electing these people, like stop giving these people a platform. Um, 
all of us are complicit to some extent in, uh, you know, making the systems that we live in, but we can choose not to. And I think, so I do think there's momentum in that direction of like many people want this not to be the way that we are. I think it will become more apparent to us as this century in particular goes on when we as a, you know, earth human populace face, are going to face and currently face tremendous challenges. Um, from science, from climate change, from, you know, uh, so many different angles that will be in these situations where, you know, leadership is required to find solutions. And either we can do that from like an understanding that the free world, which is like, you know, half the wealth and power of the earth, continues to provide leadership in the space, looking toward better lives for more people, more rights for more people, expanded representation for more people, or we can let China be in charge and continue to tell us that you can all be rich as long as you give up freedom and don't look at what we're doing to the Uyghurs. And this whole system of information and data control that we're using to oppress our entire population is completely fine and you should use it too. And these are really the competing systems. And both of those have the ability to solve these tremendous global challenges that we face and are necessary, you know, they have to work together to solve the tremendous global challenges that we face. But it really is an issue of which one's gonna win and be more convincing to people. Um, and the free world really needs to step it up. And so I think, I, I do think this will become more apparent to us as we enter these venues. And um, I think more people will become uncomfortable with this idea that like, just a few people are gonna make all these decisions for all of us, as opposed to entire populations being involved. But, um, you know, is, the, is the, the necessary force of momentum optimistic? Probably not. But, um, but I do think that uh, there's always these swings in our history, uh, both American and global. Um, but I do think people do not want to live in systems of oppression and control. And even if you don't see it, even if it's hard to see, we all sort of struggle against this and want to uh, free ourselves from those constraints. Um, and I, so I think the momentum will be in the right direction, but how we get from like right now until like 20 years from now is gonna be a really, really messy period. Um, and lots of smart, innovative work needs to be done in leadership, in technology, in science, in uh, ref making governance something that makes more sense to people again. Um, in how we communicate information and how we see ourselves as citizens, there's just a ton of work that needs to be done. And what do you, are there specific countries or continents that you expect to take the lead here? I think it's sort of this, it's not like a, a country or continent so much as a thought space, right? And it is, the core is still kind of like these NATO countries that are the security guarantee of the free world, but with all of our very necessary partners. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, Korea, South Korea, Japan, um, uh, the non-NATO European countries, Sweden and Finland, you know, there's just like, I think that nexus still has, there's so much innovation. I think, you know, New Zealand has been such an interesting example in the last few years of what new generation transparent, responsible governance can look like and how like receptive people have been to not crazy people giving them practical solutions to problems can be. Um, so I do think like it's in that in that space, there's a ton of interesting things happening. 
And, you know, I previously worked in, in Africa for a few years. And uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said there's going to be really interesting things happening from the continent. Um, but the way in which China and Russia and others have sort of provided the tools of technology-enabled oppression and mercenary-enabled, you know, oppression um, to different ruling parties across the continent, I think we've just, like, like we've lowered the momentum to the African century significantly and it really depresses me um so for now i think it's this like this place where democracy is guaranteed more strongly which is not to say we're not going to lose it if we don't stop screwing it up but i think that's where we're going to see some of these solutions coming from but i don't think it'll be just american um i do think it'll be uh like a very competitive process from this very interesting space of of people um, and I think but that's also one of the reasons why like NATO is c constantly the thing I come back to when looking at security issues is just, you know, it's, it's equal partnership between 30 nations and we're not always all going to agree, but then you have really small countries like Estonia that are incredibly innovative with an equal voice with the United States. And we've learned so much from them and we've learned so much from Lithuania and we learn so much when we sit down with the Swedes and the Finns and try to understand why they're not in NATO. Um, so I think all of that there's so much churn happening that is actually positive. Um, but I think we all need to sort of in this weird, in this last four years of America going crazy and with this pandemic, uh, we've all sort of run home and shut the doors. Right. And, and just like, we're home, we're looking at our own, we're taking care of our own people. The rest of you just need to chill for a bit. Cause like we got our own problems to deal with and all that's fine. And that's, you know, we all need to take care of our people, but um, we need to like reopen those doors and remember that we're better and stronger when we are open to each other, when we do assume common responsibility for challenges, for solutions, for how we move forward. There's a reason these last seven decades have been so safe and prosperous for us. And it's because we had those things. So we just need to like, remember, we already have this thing that works so well and use it again the right way and stop distrusting each other and stop sort of like sitting in our little like nah we're all so unhappy with each other um like yes like am i am i ever going to agree with the german security establishment on anything probably not like am i am i ever going to love all of french leadership probably not like we as america you know but screw it like this is what we've got these are our friends these are our family and um we all need to remember that like without without that family there's just a whole lot of other things that aren't going to be helpful to us. So I do think there'll be tons of innovation coming from the space. And a lot of it's individuals uh, who are coming up with good ideas. Um, but making sure those like glimmers of hope kind of expand quickly across our space and give us that resilience that we need for all the things that are coming um, is just really important. Amazing. Uh, Molly, thanks for two things. <laughs> Firstly, uh, for all the important work you do. And secondly, for being a guest and sharing your thoughts on uh, the Trusted Lab podcast. There's the greatpower.us. Where can people find your, you and your work, follow your work? So greatpower.us, which is um, the platform for, for the newsletter that we're doing now, um, which, which looks at sort of gray zone competition and hybrid warfare and all these other fun issues. And then on Twitter, I'm at Molly McHugh. Uh, which is my only social media because I know how it works. <laughs> I don't want more of it. <laughs> um, uh, and that's the best way to keep track of me because I always have too many things going on. <laughs> Let's build the trusted web together. Yay. Thanks so much for joining. And uh, yeah, it was really a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
That was Molly McHugh sharing her powerful insights. Lastly, I'd love to invite you to go to detrustedweb.org podcast. There you'll find our report on the state of misinformation as we surveyed thousands of participants across the globe to better understand the impact misinformation has on their lives and how they view the problem. There are incredible findings there that surprised all of us and I'm pretty sure they will surprise you too. And furthermore, on that website, you'll find other episodes, other guests, education and use cases for building a trusted web. It's all available there, of course, for free thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening and therefore being part of the Trusted Web journey. And let's build the Trusted Web together.